I wanted to start off by asking you what inspired you to develop behavior adjustment training. I think one of the main reasons that I developed it was for my dog, Peanut. He had uh, reactivity issues, and I had been doing a lot of other positive techniques with him, and it was still, I felt like I was getting great progress in the sense, with the other techniques, in the sense that if he was in working mode, he would be sort of, quote, fine, right? We could walk by people or have conversations if I was either continuously feeding him treats or if he was doing a particular cue but if I were to just be like, here you go, off leash with other people, interact, he had no social skills. And so um, in the, the, so I was working as a trainer, at, uh, and of course still am. And I also felt like with clients that there, there's got to be a little bit of a better way. And a lot of times people also don't want to constantly be feeding their dog treats. Um, and so basically I didn't really seek so much a way to, to get rid of the treats, but to be um, just really effective in terms of teaching those social skills. So can you explain to people that don't know the difference between BAT and a more kind of a traditional approach to counter-conditioning? Mm-hmm. Sure. So with standard counter-conditioning, the general approach is basically that there's a, a trigger, some kind of a stimulus like a dog or a person, and whenever that appears, uh, you feed treats. That's the, the short version. Usually it's combined with uh, systematic desensitization, which means that there's a gradual approach. Uh, so you start at a distance that the dog is really comfortable with and then gradually close that distance as time goes on. But generally speaking, what happens is that the trigger appears and disappears um, and then there's something fabulous, treats, toys, petting, whatever, uh, during the, the whole time that the trigger is there. And when the trigger is disappear or moves away, then the, the treats stop. Um, and then that's off, often then combined with some off-ramp procedures. So clicking for looking at the trigger clicking for looking away, feeding treats, that sort of thing. Uh, and then, so BAT is different in that it's very dog-driven. Uh, one thing is that we are letting the dogs set the pace of how close to go and when, which I think is really important. Um, what, you know, certainly at the beginning when we first arrange a, a scenario where there's a, uh, you know, a decoy dog, helper dog off at the distance, you know, with their, with their handler, um, that first appearance, we've sort of orchestrated the distance at which they see the trigger. But as soon as the dog has seen the trigger and bat, then they're the ones choosing where to go. The only exception to that is if they happen to be looking like they're stressed um, or potentially could become stressed. And one way that we know that is if they start heading in a straight line toward the trigger, that's usually a sign that the arousal level is going to go up. And so uh, we do a slow stop at that point and then gradually meander around. So it's a systematic desensitization technique, except that we're not really making the list of like this, then this, then this, that we're exposing the dog to that distance. It's the dog that's arranging those distances. And then we're also not doing counter conditioning in the sense of providing another stimulus to pair it with. We're actually giving them a chance to really just learn about the trigger itself. And that is where the, the emotional change comes from when they have a chance to really just be like, okay, I see another dog. He looked at me. I did this. It was fine. There's a, it's a, there's a lot more power in the dog uh, and in their way to influence the situation, which makes it so it tends to generalize better and go faster. So what motivates the dog? To, I mean, in a, talking about dog-to-dog aggression, mm-hmm. what would motivate the, the dog that's fearful to approach the dog that's, uh, well, just to approach another dog? Yeah, so... Very, very rarely do we ever have dogs that are like, nope, actually, I would like to be in the next county. And that's, you know, that's as close as I want the other dogs to be. Uh, Generally speaking, we can find some distance at which the dog still knows that the trigger is there, but is basically like um, curious about about it. Um, So one, I mean, it's a very natural response if there is something that you're concerned about to be able to check it out and look, right? It's, it's the same reason it's like if you were afraid of spiders and I'm like, there's a spider in this box and he can't get you. And then you're like, oh, well, let me let me take a little look at it. Um, you know, so somehow it works for dogs as well. So novelty um, and just the fact that it's their own species or it's humans that they're, you know, generally around anyway. Um, so generally I find that they, they do, uh, if you're at the right distance, they do want to approach. And if not, you, we can start to use some more treat-based techniques with it mixed with that. Oh, okay. So do you find that um, the social um, behaviours in themselves are kind of rewarding or, you know, yeah. in themselves kind of intrinsically? Yeah. I, I, yeah. So the conversation 
I call it, basically that they're having back and forth with the other dog or the people or whatever, that is reinforcing because there's a consequence to their actions, right? So if they turn their head, the other dog turns his head, it's like, oh, okay, we're, you know, I, I mean, obviously dogs aren't thinking in this sense, but like, oh, it's working. But I mean, that's what behavior is for, is to have an effect. So when it does, that's that's reinforcing. So, and it could potentially be that it's movement away, so we're removing a stimulus, or it could be that they're, they've got had their fill and they're just ready to move on. So we don't know necessarily, is there, you know, at each moment, is it specifically reinforcement and which type and, and whatever. But we do know that they become more and more comfortable. Um, they start to show more appropriate social skills, um, and then eventually, a lot of times, you know, play and whatever normal dogs would do. So does it work then because of the fact that um, the social interaction is kind of intrinsically rewarding? I mean, I think why does... Yeah. Sorry. Oh, no, no, go ahead. So, I mean, so in a sense, it would still be kind of counter-conditioning just in a different approach to it. Exactly. So I would say it's a type of counter-conditioning, but it's not like you're presenting one stimulus than the other. It's the stimulus and then whatever natural next stimulus would be. (laughs) Um, So we're not providing, you know, an... um, uh, like a fake one. It's just, this is, this is what life gives you. And that's how other dogs got their social skills in the first place. Right. So we didn't have to pay the golden retriever to be social with treats. They somehow learned, right. So we can provide an environment in which the dog can learn. Uh, and that's what that's all about. So what are the advantages to using it over a kind of more traditional method? What I find is that the dog is, excuse me, is more socially capable with that uh, than with a lot of the other techniques. And I mean, that's for me, that's the main thing is that you have a dog that you don't necessarily, you don't need to micromanage. There may be some situations that are completely novel that you haven't planned for that the dog's feeling overwhelmed, but then you've already developed with that a communication system between you and your dog so that you know, okay, he needs some space now and, you know, we'll move him out of here. Um, but generally speaking, they're, they're much more socially capable uh, and that you don't, I mean, a lot of times the what we do doesn't involve treats at all, but certainly there can be treats in the process, like on walks. A lot of times we'll still use treats, but that seems to make people feel better as well, that we're not just shoving food in their face. So do you use BAT in 100% of your cases? That um, I use BAT with because- 100% of dogs that I interact with, whether they have a reactivity history or not, honestly. Um, because it's it's really all about honoring the social needs of the dog. And so, I, you know, I use the leash skills that we developed in BAT, which is a way to help dogs feel as off-leash as possible. Um, so it's very specific handling, you know, with the long line, or you can use a short line. And so those I'm certainly using with all dogs. Um, with all, pretty much all the aggression cases I work with, there's it's either all BAT or some component of BAT. Um, but there are a lot of other positive tools that we might be using as well. So T-Touch or some of the control and leash type of focus activities, that sort of thing. I saw your post recently about um, parallel playing mm-hmm. because parallel walking is something I'm familiar with. But I'm not, I ha- this was the first time I'd ever seen or heard about parallel playing. Mm-hmm. What role does um, kind of parallel anything have to do in, in kind of behavior work? So the parallel play is a it's a term that I grabbed from um, the work that people do with children. So with kids, basically, they're each child is kind of doing a task, and they're in the same space. They're kind of playing together, but really they're doing their own thing. And so that's what I I do with that as well. When we need to be working with a dog in a smaller space, or uh, if we need some level of distraction for the dog then we can do another activity but still be applying the general principles of that at the same time. So, for example, the one dog might be doing um, some agility and the other one might be doing heel or they could both do agility or whatever. And then, But you're still looking for those moments where they have a chance to sort of glance at each other, get information, and then move back to the task. So we're not saying, you know, watch me, watch me, watch me. Uh, if there's a, a moment that where bat could be done, then we allow that to happen, and then we'll get back to the other task because the bat part is primary in in those moments. Um, so parallel walking is, you know, it, it could be exactly in a parallel line, could be, um, you know, kind of two wavy lines. And with bat, most of the time it's very wavy um, because we're following the dog uh, in their walking paths um, and just making sure that we don't allow them to get too close. 
So whereas um, a lot of the parallel walking when you're using more treat-based techniques would be, uh, or correction-based, I suppose, um, techniques would be to go pretty much in two parallel lines or in like arcs, uh, like a football-shaped arc, if you were to look at it from the top, an American football. Um, But with us, yeah, it's just like squiggles that are basically two non-intersecting curves, (laughs) to use a more accurate mathematical term. So how does that then compare to something like a, a growl class? Or, it's growl class, isn't it? I'm getting myself confused. Yeah. Um, well, so, I mean, growl classes are just ways, you know, classes to work on reactivity. So a lot of them actually use bats uh, in their techniques, and some of them use more just regular, you know, positive training with giving treats and stuff. Um, so for me, when I when I observe after having implemented that in, into our growly dog classes uh, in Seattle, uh, the company I used to own. Um, so after doing that and, you know, and doing that for years, it's watching reactivity classes where the dogs are just crammed into one space and getting a whole lot of treats for being calm-ish uh, really stresses me out because the dogs don't want to be in that room. And the only reason they're in there is because they're getting treats. Um, it certainly is much, much, much better than if they were getting corrections for, you know, whining or barking or whatever else. But I think that um, humans can convince dogs to do things that is that are not actually in the dog's best interest. Um, so dog, a lot of dogs are over threshold in those spaces, meaning that they're too stressed. So growl classes in themselves aren't bad then. It's just the way that they're ran. Correct. Yeah. So, and most of the time, the, the, the ones that I prefer are outdoors. Um, if they're indoors, then it would be, it would need to be with a lot of barriers and dogs that are potentially less reactive doing parallel play activities. Um, but really, really watching for that stress level, seeing if dogs are, are not better suited for private lessons first, for example. Um, you speak a lot as well about empowerment training. Mm-hmm. What does that mean when you, when you talk about that? By empowerment, I mean that the dog's behavior is effective, right? So like I said before, and as Susan Friedman says, behavior evolved specifically to have an effect, right? So if the dog, and in particular for me, what that means is looking for all of those times where um, there's something that we either do to the dog or for the dog that we can have it be based on their behavior that that happens. So for example, if I'm doing um, a blood draw, so a more standard way would just be to restrain the dog. Uh, so this is a standard but positive way would be to restrain the dog or maybe use treats to kind of lure them to you um, and then, you know, hold them while they get their blood draw, feed them some treats, and then, you know, they have a relatively good experience. But with more empowerment-based training, what we do is we teach the dog a specific cue to get into that position. So you can cue them. Uh, I use the cue car wash, which just means to kind of get between my legs. And then target, so he does a chin target to my hand. Uh, this is for my own dog, for example. Um, and then he's targeting the whole time while we're doing the blood draw. So if at any point during the, the desensitization and counter conditioning for this, he says, I'm not comfortable, he, all he has to do is just pull his hand or his head away from my uh, hand. So the dog has a way to say, let's start this procedure and also let's stop this procedure. With, of course, the exception of when the needle's actually in, um, then we want to make sure he's not leaving. But um, but otherwise, um, you know, like for nail trims, the, you know, the dog handing over the paw while you're doing counter conditioning, for example. So the dog, you know, dog paw, you know, brings out the paw, you show the clippers, you feed the treat. If ever the dog pulls the paw away, you just stop. Um, so, yeah, it's about giving the dogs um, power within the relationship over anything that is possible to give power over. Not meaning that you have no power either, like your own behavior needs to be important too, um, and there needs to be boundaries, but giving the dog maximal control. As a professional, what happens when you're put in a situation when you just need to do something? I think that's something that I get asked a lot, is especially from people like dog groomers or or vets, etc., when you can't wait, you just have to do it. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about that? Is there something that you can do to kind of help the situation? Well, so in that moment, it's basically back to the, the first version where, you know, where you're restraining, but you're getting treats afterward. Um, but there's you have to sort of think about, could I reschedule this procedure to give time to train, right? So, for example, when my dog needed a blood draw, 
uh, and I realized, you know what, I can postpone this for two weeks, do the chin targeting training exercise, and then we can do it. So instead of a shivering mess of a dog where, you know, we're holding them down, we can have this cooperative thing. So if it's possible to postpone to do some training, do it. Um, if it's possible to do some training for your clients in general, right, so handouts that the vets can give out so that the clients are more prepared next time, that sort of thing. Um, and then certainly focusing in terms of puppies, you know, to get that, get them through and adult dogs as well, um, to train them. Um, my dog, for example, was 13 when he learned the cooperative blood draw. So it's, it's definitely never too late. Do you feel like that's something that we should be teaching in puppy classes? Oh, yes. Yeah. So I honestly, I think that a lot of our training is upside down. We are basing our training on um, you know, what competition looks like. Uh, so we're looking for, you know, fast sits and downs and all these things. And certainly some amount of that kind of training is useful. So if you need, you know, one specific position, one stay, a recall, um, but then the rest of your training really needs to be focused ar- around this concept of cooperative care. Because you can, the main thing that we do with our clients, right, is that in puppy classes, we want the puppies to be around other dogs. So that's, okay, we've got that. Um, you know, you can do playtime with your recalls and all that. But all of the, the main focus really is getting the clients to understand how to train. And that training doesn't have to be competition obedience skills. It really should be something that's in the best interest of the dog. So, yeah, that's one of my so, big ones. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's cool. Um, so even going kind of pre-puppy owner, is that something that then breeders should be doing with their puppies, something like, um, kind of like early neurological stimulation, that type of stuff. Yes. Yeah. And I do, I love the, the super puppy, the early neurological stimulation. And, but yeah, so breeders can be doing things that would then lend itself to the body handling uh, exercises that come later. Um, so certainly body handling and that stuff when they're really young, but also potentially doing something like teaching the chin target so that um, you're, you know, you can do chin target and then use that to look at the teeth. That way, their very first visit, they've already got those skills um, when they get to the vet. So, yeah, puppies are like little information sponges, and breeders could certainly be teaching a lot to them so that that would um, eliminate a lot of the dog's stress. Do you feel like breeders are kind of not doing enough when it becomes comes over to the behavior stuff as a whole? I think there are some really fabulous breeders out there, and I and it's great when they can do that. Uh, I yeah, if I, I mean if I was queen of the universe, certainly the breeders would be doing a lot more. And that is is just the early neurological stimulation, the empowerment training. Is there anything else that kind of comes? If you're queen of the universe, I would also be doing, you know, sound desensitization. Uh, and and I really like using sounds. Um, I mean, so if you have an entire litter of puppies, you would just probably be playing it during meal times or something. But uh, with an individual dog, you can also use a sound as a marker in order to do desensitization. So this is probably more technical than what your breeder people would want. But in uh, for pet dogs uh, that are already in the home. Um, so I use, let's say, for example, that you're getting the dog used to the sound of a, a doorbell, right? So you can have the puppy sit, and when, when the puppy sits, use the doorbell as a marker. So just like you would click normally, you just ring the doorbell and then feed the treat. So the puppy sits, ring the doorbell, feed the treat. So this is a little bit opposite of the way that we would normally do it, which is to have the doorbell be a cue to sit, which is also possible. But um, any sound that you, that you want the dog to get used to and comfortable with, like gunshots, um, you know, fireworks, that sort of thing, if it is a consequence of their actions, so you empower them to bring that sound about, then that gives you more information as to how you're doing it. So if it's too loud, then the puppy's not going to want to sit. And that means that you should, you know, tone it back down again because otherwise, um, you know, so the puppy has a way to say, I don't really want that sound to happen versus the more standard counter conditioning where it would just be like, boom, here it is again. Here's some trait. And you're watching for other more subtle signs of um, of stress. Whoa, that's really interesting because I've, no, I've never heard of that. I've only heard of the, like you said, the more standard mm-hmm. method where you're looking for the signs of the stress. Yeah. Um, is that something that is involved in bat or is that something it's something I just that, developed I don't yeah it's, I mean it's not technically bat um but it's 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 in the empowerment vein so yeah so where can people find out more about empowerment 
Because that sounds really, that's, that you've got me interested now. That sounded really cool. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, I have an empowered puppy raising course on my site. Uh, that's probably one of the best places for it. And, um, yeah, and then just being a part of the, um, I have the Animal Building Blocks Academy. A lot of what we talk about is empowerment and how can we include that for the dogs. And I guess the, the empowered puppy raising is kind of what we're actually talking about here. Is is does that that I'm, I imagine appeals to puppy owners more than puppy breeders? I think so. Yeah. And oh, actually, there's one more thing I should probably bring up, which is that Wednesday I have a teamwork seminar, which is online, uh, and then I have a couple in the UK as well that are coming up in May. That the teamwork is really about the kind of the adult version of empowerment. So we'll be talking about a lot of that showing videos about, um, you know, doing the cooperative blood draw and that sort of thing. Okay. So when you say teamwork, that's quite, quite a, like a open term. Like is that I, when I, when, when I heard the word teamwork, I think of competition and stuff like uh, that, but I guess it, that's not what you're thinking. Of. <laughs> no, good, uh, good call. So yeah, I'm, I'm thinking of it as just you being a team with your dog. So rather than doing things to your dog, that there's true cooperation where you're, you know, you're working for, the betterment of both sides. Okay, cool. So the other thing that, um, the other book that you've got is the, uh, tell me if I'm pronouncing this wrong, the uh, Ahimsa training manual? Yes, good job. Okay, cool. Uh, <laughs> so what's, what did, what's that book about? Uh, so, so to start off, uh, Ahimsa is the, the name of the company that I started in Seattle uh, about a decade ago. And uh, Ahimsa is a Buddhist doctrine of nonviolence. So it's basically using nonviolent dog training and um, it is a general skills book. So it's what we hand out in our puppy classes, what we give to all of our basic manners dogs. So it's how to teach all of the various things that you would need to teach um, in that. And then plus there's a section on like resource guarding, some puppy socialization, a little overview of that, that sort of thing. So it's a good general training book. And it's not very big either, which is nice. I think it's like 120 pages or something. How... Do you approach puppy socialization? Because I, I think it's something that people have been doing wrong for a very long time now. Because originally it was, um, it just was nothing that didn't really exist. Then it became kind of just throwing all the yeah. puppies together. <laughs> this is what I've seen anyway. I mean, you tell me how you feel Yeah. Um, so, I mean, if I was to like design the ideal puppy socialization class, it would involve a way for all of the puppies to be comfortable at all times or to be able to disengage from the group if, if needed. Um, so indoors can work, but again, a lot of times what we do want to do is, is outdoors, um, but with puppies, that's not always possible. So depending on the age of the puppies in the class, um, you know, big indoor space is fine as long as they've got like, you know, they can go behind barriers or up on surfaces or whatever else. Um, and that you do things like walks together. So the puppies are all on a big walk together and you're getting the people, you know, feeding treats for puppies, you know, generally paying attention, but using the bat leash skills. So the puppies feel as off leash as possible. Um, and then really kind of going through all of the ways that we can socialize and the ways that we can empower the puppy. So those would be my primary. Uh, and of course, we need to talk about house training and biting and the usual suspects in there, too. From what I've seen in puppy classes, I think people feel very let down if the puppies, or maybe not puppy classes, but it people feel let down if the puppies aren't playing for like a huge proportion yeah, of the time. Yeah, and you know, the thing is that the, the puppies end up just getting way too riled up and learning inappropriate skills. Uh, and it also shouldn't just be like one big group of, you know, 10 dogs running around together. The, when when I was teaching at Ahimsa, we basically had three sections of our training school. So each section had a group of dogs that would be appropriate to play together. So three dogs, usually two, three, four dogs, somewhere in there. Um, and even numbers would be great, but that's not always possible. And um, so dogs that are appropriately matched to each other. And then we had rolling admission classes, which I really like because that means that there are people in that class in your, as your students who are more experienced so they can help coach the, the newer students. So basically you have a lot of, of eyes on those puppies. Um, but yeah, like five minutes at so, a time and, um, and then back out. Um, and I have another thing on there, but go ahead. I was going to say, so do you then have puppies of very different ages? Because you said that you, you have people. Yeah. So, on. I mean, the, the, the limit is, um, for entrance into the class, I think it's about four and a half months. Um, and we also have a baby puppy class that's just for the younger dogs. 
Um, so in, the, in that one, there wouldn't be as many um, experienced dogs, but we also don't have as many troublemakers because they're all this, like under 10 weeks or 12 weeks or something. Uh, okay. So the, so the, if, so as an owner of the little puppy, uh, of a, a kind of like a 10 week old puppy or whatever, they can go correct. to either class. Yeah. And oh, they, okay, they can cool. go to as many classes per week as they want to. Um, so we have 13, 14 classes a week. So the owners can also choose wow. to drop into other classes as long as there's room. So we have an online registration system and they can, that way they get to have multiple uh, amounts of exposure to the classes. How how much do you feel is kind of too much? Yeah, good... I think like every other day uh, is is fairly good for the pups. Um, it depends on the dog, and sometimes what we would recommend for people is that they come for ten minutes, but every day, so that they're getting just a little bit of exposure, and then um, you know if the puppy is feeling uncomfortable, that they get a break from that, or that they do the first ten minutes and the last ten minutes, so they don't have to necessarily. Um, feel like they're forced to, you know, get their money's worth in that one class if there's only the one class each week. And how long do your classes uh, run? Yep. Oh, okay. But people can come yeah, and go, exactly. so please. Yep. Um, yeah. Oh, that's pretty and, cool. Um, what was I going to say? There's something in there. Oh, I'm sure it'll come back. <laughs> okay. The other thing I wanted to mention as well is your approach to kind of Caesar Milan seems different because so many trainers are full of hatred towards Caesar Milan. And I know that you don't agree with him, but your approach seems different in that you'd rather see him come around to the kind of positive mm-hmm. side of things than just completely. Yeah. I don't need to see him punished. You know. I, I am a positive trainer. So I, I just need his behavior to change and I'm perfectly fine with like, I would, it would be amazing if he would learn how to use more empowerment based techniques because that I think would have a bigger effect on the world than if we just, took him off the air, right? So I, I think it would be much more useful to all the dogs um, to, for people to be like, oh, Cesar Milan changed what he did, so we can change too, right? So it's setting an example. And I do know, you know, through social psychology that it's very, very hard at this point for him to be able to change, right? He's got this huge empire and his reputation is based on this. Um, so every small change where he is able to change his behavior is, is huge to me. Um, I kind of think of it as like if you're working with a, a dog who has aggression or reactivity issues, right? So we want to try to set them up for success and, and reinforce the good moments. And, you know, if I had control of more of his reinforcers, then I would be able to teach him. Um, but at this point, you know, not necessarily. Uh, but I do think that the more we say he's evil or he's a bad person, the less we even get listened to because, if I were him and someone said, you're an evil person and here's what you should do, like the second half, I'm not even listening, right? Because I know the first half is garbage because, like, nobody thinks that they're evil. <laughs> so uh, so if we actually sure. want our message to be heard, then I think, you know, we need to stop um, blaming. We, just like we don't label the dogs as aggressive dogs, we need to stop labeling our people. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I mean, before, I mean, I've got a story similar to many people. Before I was into positive training, I was a huge Caesar flat fan. And I went and saw him live and, and I've watched all of his TV shows and he never struck me as an evil person. And even now yeah. he doesn't strike me as an evil person. I just think he's really misguided. Yeah, and I also think that, like, if I'm trying to reach people like you, right, for example, who who you are, are at the point, right, that you are a fan and... If I say your hero, you know, is an idiot, then, I mean, that's not going to work. So, I mean, it's very, it's, there. Oh, I'm not now. No, so you at that point, right? So if to the old you, that's right? And I say, you know, before you've learned anything else, then I just say that, you know, you're, you're wrong for listening to him. And, you know, you've got this established repu- um, sort of relationship with this person. And so if I'm just like bad mouthing him, then I look like the fool. So. It, it makes it so that it's harder to listen to what I have to say. Yeah, no, I think you're completely right. I mean, I remember thinking back then, I was always very defensive when someone criticised him because he was like my exactly. idol back then. <laughs> yeah. um, until I came across... It was Karen Pryor's book, actually, that kind of really changed me over on um, nice, Don't Shoot the nice. Dog, which I think is similar to a lot of mm-hmm. people. Yeah, um, it's a great book for... for uh, motivating people to cross over. There was 
a period of time where he seemed to be talking to a lot more positive trainers, but then he didn't really seem to change. It's, it's, well, I don't know. You, it sounds like you've been kind of keeping an eye more than me, but he didn't seem to... Um, he was still kind of promoting his yeah, sort of dominance. Yeah, uh, I mean, as a whole, the, the, the overall philosophy, I think, is still exactly the same. But I, so there's a couple of things. So one is uh, I certainly see more use of traits, a little bit better use of thresholds. Um, I also see, you know, that him, him saying things like you can use clicker training to teach the basics, right? So there, there's some change in there. It's not the change, you know, the full change that I would like to see. But if you look at how he is with people, he actually uses, he's a fairly good positive trainer with humans. So if he could use the skills that he already has, so he's prepared with that skill set. He just needs to apply it to the dogs. Um, So uh, there was a a show that I watched one time where there was a guy who was afraid of dogs. Um, And so he was, he was coaching the man through that. And if he were to, if Caesar were to apply those skills that he applied to the television reporter, to dogs instead, um, then I think there would be a lot fewer people that didn't like what he did. <laughs> so do you watch his show a lot just to kind of see where uh, he's No, at? I mean, I watch it some, but I mean, honestly, I, it, it, it's really, really hard to watch because the dogs are so stressed and yeah, um, yeah so it's, it's not a, it's not a pleasant experience when I watch it. <laughs> sure. Sure. Um, there was a. I remember I've watched a few old, old episodes of Victoria Stillwell's training, and and she was very much more yeah. punishment based. Whereas now she's a huge kind of um, advocate for positive training. So it's not like right, it's never exactly. been done. Or like Jordan Shelley, right? Had the the one show, right? There was the episode there where he was on there doing basically Caesar Milan techniques, and now he uses positive training. So it is. It is possible yeah. uh, for people to have been in the limelight and to change their techniques, uh, like the Volharts uh, wrote books before, and, and they, they crossed over as well. Um, but it definitely, I have huge respect for anyone who is able to do that because you have to face the, the reality of like, oh, my God, I was doing something that wasn't necessary, and does that make me a bad person? And, and so certainly a lot of people are like, well, actually, it was necessary, therefore I'm still a good person, but the more the better approach as far as I'm concerned is to say okay that was in the past I know better now and now I'm not doing it anymore sure so would you be open to helping Caesar come over to the positive side or or learn some more skills yeah in fact I'm so I'm going to be teaching in Los Angeles a couple times this next year and so we're doing our best to try to reach out so if anybody has connections to him that would be great because I would love to just be like here's what we do. Could you, could you watch it and fold something of it in there? Cause every little bit, every choice matters. So every piece of empowerment we can give to the animals will make a difference in their quality of life. So if he ends up not taking all of it, but just little pieces, that's something that's, that's progress. I think the idea of bat um, is really maybe more appealing to people that are punishment based than say, traditional kind of conditioning methods where people have got such a, um already conceived idea about using treats, whereas bat isn't so treat-heavy, so maybe it would be more, I don't know, maybe it would help people I transition so more. Yeah, no, yeah. I agree with you. And and a lot of also what happens in the more traditional training is, is you know, just getting the dog used to it, right? So in a sense, it is sort of, they sort of have that piece, except it's, we're not throwing them into the deep end of the pool to get used to it. We're standing at the, you know, at the edge and getting them used to it in a way that's not going to um, cause a return of fear later. It's interesting you bring up the pool there. Is can you then apply that to things that aren't see because in my mind i'm always i'm always thinking dog reactivity or human reactivity but can you apply that to say swimming pools or going upstairs and yeah stuff like that? so i definitely use that with inanimate objects all the time uh, especially for puppy socialization right so you're walking along and they're like oh my god it's a fire hydrant um so you basically you know the exploration of that item uh you can do sort of that style now, if for some reason they're not actually, they're just completely avoiding it, like they don't want to get into the car and that's the end of story, uh, then I would do some, uh, an aspect of that called mark and move, which I, I imagine you know. 
Um, but basically, you know, like click when they approach, move away, drop a treat, click when they approach, move away, drop a treat. Um, but you're not leading the dog toward the car. You're just um, catching it when it happens. And you might put something in the car that makes it more attractive, like another dog or a person or a ball. Um, yeah, same thing, like if you're getting a dog to go into a kitchen or, you know, so sometimes you have to, um, when there isn't that social draw that we talked about before, you need to sort of make it interesting. There's a lot of talk. I've seen a lot of talk about um, introducing conflict into a situation. And you just mentioned about put, making it more appealing to, say, get into the boot. Would that then create a conflict? And is yeah, that a problem? It, no, you're totally right. And um, that is just something of a problem, depending on, like, how exciting you make it, right? So you, you basically just want to give it just enough interest that they're, they do want to approach it, but not so much that they're like, yes, I will go through fire to get to that. So, for example, with my dog, Peanut, he would do anything for a tennis ball. So I probably wouldn't want to put the tennis ball in the car because that would be too much. Um, but just like a couple of treats, and he's like, well, I sort of want to go over there, but I feel free to leave as well. So there's that magnetic drive isn't so strong that it creates that conflict of when he gets there, now he panics and then leaves again. A dog owner might be listening to this now and thinking, like, why on earth wouldn't you use the tennis ball? If you, you know, um, if you're just, like, so, late for something and you need to get the dog in the car, absolutely. Um, but uh, if you're actually trying to sort of develop a, a calm approach to the car, then it would be too much. But sorry, go ahead with your question. Yeah, so I was going to say, why wouldn't you use something that that is so highly reinforcing? What is the problem with mm-hmm. conflict? Or what is the problem with with that? Well, I don't know. I don't know how to phrase it, but just that kind of situation where you're you're using a really high reinforcer to to make the dog do something that maybe it wouldn't want to, or maybe it's scared. A of. couple of things. So um, one thing is that if it's so reinforcing and so attractive to them, it may actually be that they're not really paying attention to the process of approaching or the smell of the car or anything else about the car. It's really like tennis ball, tennis ball, tennis ball in their head, right? So they could have, you know, gone to the moon and back. They have no idea where they even were practically because they're so motivated by this item, right? So they're over-motivated. The other thing is that um, what I do see sometimes is that the dog you know, they'll go in and, and get it, but then they're they're panicked. So the general emotional connection is still a negative one. Even though they went there for something good, it's still just like, oh, my God, I just, you know, lived through a hurricane. Um, so there's research that says that, at least with humans, is this research was done. But if the, you know, like if the heart rate is elevated while you're doing desensitization, that it tends not to stick as well. But it is totally possible that it can work. I mean, flooding also even works sometimes, right, just to be like force the dog to do something. But those types of techniques have a more probability of backfiring and so similar as well in terms of forcing them through something that's really attractive. Okay. Um, We've always been kind of uh, fed this idea of using really high-value reinforcement, uh, yeah, really have high-value rewards for things like counter conditioning. Do you think then that we should, shouldn't be using high value rewards? Yeah. For the same so reason? it's, it, it all depends on kind of, yeah, I, I would say sort of most of the time it all depends. But um, if you, if it's going to distract from the situation or cause behavior that, uh, or put the dog into a conflicted situation, then I would use a lower value reinforcer. Um, if it's just like you need a really, you know, snappy heel or, you know, some really fast response to recall, that's when your great, amazing treats come out because you want to change the motivation. When you're trying to, like with dog-to-dog aggression or with people, when you're trying to get really subtle behaviors, then you don't want to introduce that other motivator because it motivates the wrong behavior set, right? So for me, I would want the dogs to be interacting with the other dog in order to learn how to interact with the other dog instead of staring at me the whole time looking for treats. Yeah, that's it's a really interesting idea as well, teaching the dog to interact with another dog. I mean, I think I've got a dog maybe that's a little bit similar to Peanut in that he doesn't really understand mm-hmm. any play skills, like you, you said at the start. How do you use BAT to teach dogs that don't know play mm-hmm. skills um, 
play yeah. tools, essentially. Um, so it, it basically comes about from making friends. So, you know, you're doing these bat setups with starting out with dogs who were more mellow at first um, and getting some of those smaller bits of body language, you know, getting them to notice those as time goes on. Going on, I do most of my bat setups now with um, going on a walk together. So the dog that's new or the, you know, the helper dog kind of in the front and your dog in the back following along. Um, so as they just interact with each other, they start to just pick up more and more of those social skills. And a lot of times they have it. They're just not using it or they're afraid. So the reason that they're not, you know, able to actually play with the other dog is that they're, um, they just don't trust the situation. So by building the trust, then a lot of what they already did learn in the litter will come back out again. So that's one thing. Um, if for some reason you have a dog who's like a singleton or just really is completely socially inept, uh, then you, I would do like more mark and move, like we talked about kind of with the car as well, but clicking for specific behaviors during that interaction that you liked, uh, and then moving away and reinforcing. But uh, most of the time what's happening is that they're getting reinforced by the other dog as well. Um, but if you have a dog, for example, that their play style is just really rough, um, so they're hurting the other dog or doing rude things, then you want to sort of interrupt before that happens. But that's, that's not the problem that we have with Peanut. He's just shy. <laughs> yeah, he's not being rude uh, okay. to anyone. Because, but... hey, I sound like this person, that person at the seminar that just keeps asking <laughs> about their dog. But um, I was going to say, um, with my dog, again, he shows some in, inappropriate behaviors. Now, when he, with dogs that he does trust, um, with kind of jumping on top of them, etc., then he gets told off by the other dog. Is that an issue? Or is that something, is that part of him developing the skills? It can be part of him developing the skills. It depends on how many times it happens and how the other dog is handling that, right? So we want to make sure that we have everyone's welfare in mind. So if the other dog is like, I'm totally fine, I play with, you know, 500 dogs a week, and this is just one I need to tell off once, and then he gets it, totally fine. Um, if your other, you know, if the other dog you're with is like, I'm 13 years old and I'm scared of dogs, you know, you want to have that dog sure. telling, right, or a puppy. Um, so yeah, it, so it depends, I guess, but certainly dogs can give corrections to each other and that's, that's totally appropriate. Um, if you see it coming, right, if you see like, okay, he's about to do the jumping thing, then that's where you say, you know, off or you know, give some trained cue that would then change that pattern. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me like he's almost trying to mm-hmm. play. So it's it's almost like him trying to figure it out. It's really, it's a hard one. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I and don't that, know. But, and that, yeah, I mean, a yeah. lot of times it's from the other dogs that they, they learn those social skills as long as we've created a safe environment. And it's also how they make that switch of, okay, I don't like dogs to actually I do, not from the treats that they get from you, but from the interaction with the other dogs. Do you find that if they then get told off by another dog for inappropriate behavior, that they can then just start to lose interest in dogs um, again? I, w- I mean, I guess that's possible, uh, especially if it's happening a lot. But I would say, you know, if it's an appropriate correction of just like, rah, 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 and then it's over, and then you continue on your walk, and then they have other behaviors that are appropriate around that dog, then it should be fine. Okay, yeah, cool. Dogs are fairly resilient, especially if, if you have with that other dog you know, you've built up a little bit of a relationship. So it's not just like you walk up and then they get a correction. Yeah. So I'm jumping back and forth a little bit here, but did that exist prior to your book? Um, so, so the first book in 2011, I had been doing bat for about a year before that and then sort of proto bat before that. But bat 2.0, the version we're doing now started in 2014. Okay, so so you essentially invented the the Correct. system of bat. I mean, so it's basically, like, I mean, a lot of it is, is taking the best bits from all of the various techniques that are out there already, and then the other part is taking this concept of empowerment and then trying to figure out a technique that would fit it. So should people, if people are getting into bat now, should they read the, the newest book or should they no, read both? No, just the newest book. So they don't need to read the old one uh, because I've revised the technique. So there are some things in the previous version that I don't really do anymore, uh, especially things like leading the dog toward the trigger. Uh, so before we were still, of course, watching for the stress level and trying to make it sure it's as pos- you know as um, good for the dog as possible. But 
what I would do is, you know, we walk away and then after a little brief pause, I would take a step or two toward the trigger and see if the dog was willingly following. And it turned out that when you do it that way, you end up putting the dog over threshold a lot more. So it's not something I recommend anymore. And so everything good from the previous book is in the second book, but there's a lot more new things in the new book as well. Okay, that's really interesting. So did you cut a lot of stuff from the old book, or is is the new book, or is it a mixture yeah. of both? Did you cut some? Yeah, I would some? say I, like I used the the first book as kind of the skeleton for the 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 new one, um, but definitely everything basically got rewritten. So. Okay, cool. Um, sorry, I've I've run out of my um. The question, I wrote a big list of questions. We worked through That's them okay. so far. I have something about puppies um, if you'd like to meet it. Yeah, sure, cool. Because we work, actually, that's you're going to bring it up a bit. Yeah, ago, exactly. You? Got... So um, there's something that, uh, a way of doing puppy play that I really recommend. So uh, a lot of times what people do is just release, you know, the dogs all at once and just, okay, go play. And what actually works better is to have the puppies, like, tag the next puppy in. So what I mean by that is let's say you've got four puppies in your space and then the one who's the most cautious about the other dogs is who you let off first. So you let that puppy off leash. Everyone else is kind of crouched down, um, you know, like a finger through the harness of their dog. And then um, when the puppy gets into sort of conversational distance with another puppy, you know, when they start like looking at each other, there's a little bit of language between them, then you let go of that puppy. And then the next same thing as you go around. So pretty soon everybody's sort of tagged in. Um, and that works a lot better. Whoa, that's, that's really interesting. That's like a puppy Royal Rumble <laughs> type thing. That's yeah. really interesting. So do you, how do you set the puppies up for that? Are you in like an um, arc? No, or? they're just kind of spread out throughout the room. Um, so like in, if there were four puppies, just kind of in a square, you know, relatively close to the walls so there's a lot of space in the middle um and i have to say that this this technique came from claudia seiler um a better companion up here in alaska so she did that in the play group that peanut does and i was just like wow this is a great idea so um and then yeah so <laughs> it provides a safe space yeah, for the puppies so like uh if there's a really shy puppy in that group then you we always well, anyway, um, so she uses like an X pen against the wall, right? Um, but the part that I really like is that there's a, a gap in it and the owner is standing in that gap. So if the puppy wants to, it needs some space, comes running back to the owner, then the owner can, you know, put the puppy in that space or lure them in, but then just not let anybody else in that space. And then when the puppy's feeling confident, there's free, you know, the, he, he can leave again. So it's a one-way uh, so it allows him to, to come and go freely, but it blocks anybody else from coming into that safe space. So it's important that they have a safe space. Because yeah. I think a lot of people, new puppy owners, attempted to kind of drag them out from under Absolutely. the chair type thing. Yeah, or like if the puppies jump up on them, they just think it's regular jumping, but it's actually, please get me out of here. Sure. So that's, I mean, you bring up another good point there. I mean, I've heard, I've heard a lot of, especially big dog owners say, or get frustrated when a small dog owner picks up their dog. Um, how do you feel about that? Because I know I've heard it, but from dog owner time and time again, where they say, oh, you make them pray when you pick them up. How do you feel about that? If, if your dog's uncomfortable with the situation? I feel like it makes them safe. So, I mean, like, certainly some situation, some possibility, right, that it might make the other dog more excited. Um, but, I, I, I mean, if my dog is feeling scared, then I'll scoop him up and turn away. So he's not, like, face-to-face with a dog who might be jumping. Then the other person can call their dog if they're off leash or whatever else. But first and foremost, my job is to protect my dog's physical and emotional well-being. So I'm not going to just leave them on the ground to be like, oh, work it out. It'll be fine. Um, I actually teach my dog to jump up into my arms. So, you know, and it's also his choice completely to get into that up position. So do you think if you do that and you're and you're regularly um, looking after your dog in the sense of if it's starting to get a little bit uncomfortable, that they will do that more Mm -hmm. often? They, uh, yeah, so they certainly, I mean, they, they feel more comfortable. So they're doing it less frequently in that sense. But when they are feeling uncomfortable, they'll rely on that more. Does that make sense? So it's a, 
it's more of a go-to behavior, yeah. but you're, you don't need it as much because now they're like, oh, I can escape whenever I want to. So they, they feel more comfortable. Yeah, so it's, I mean, it's not, I mean, I'm guessing here that it's not really a problem that it never becomes a problem of, a, of the dog becoming over-reliant on that, especially with a fearful dog. No, it's exactly the opposite. With, they, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's one of those things where if you think about it is, okay, yes, it's, you know, negative reinforcement, right? So you've taken the dog out of a scary situation, so it's reinforcing, so in, in a sense that that behavior is stronger, but it's not more frequent because it's, it's something they don't need to do as much because, again, you know, they feel more safe. It's just like if I have a volume control on the radio, right? So if I know that I can turn it down whenever I want to, then, then you know, someone's, I'm fine with them having it louder, you know, so it's like if I have some control over the situation, I don't need to exert that control all the time. Is there any way that we can kind of replicate that with a larger dog? Yeah. Um, so one thing, I mean, if, so like if you're in a, in a training class, um, you know, having the larger dog come around and do like a, a car wash position, which I said sort of come between your legs and, and sort of poke his head out, then the handler can... Um, uh, you know, keep any anybody else from coming into that space by just sort of reaching down and petting them. Uh, so they've got that safe space. Um, but yeah, certainly you can't pick up the larger dog, which is unfortunate. But um, and back to the yeah. one more thing in the the safe space, like with with very tiny puppies as well, you can just be like sitting on the floor with your back to the wall and create that safe space by just like petting anybody else that comes at arm's length. Um, and then only your puppy is allowed to be on your lap and in that space. Okay, cool. So do you, it's, it's almost like a cue that they need mm-hmm. more space. Exactly. Then. Yep. And so then having, you know, one of the things that certainly the owner can do or the caregiver can do is have the other people call their dog at that point. So. We'll yeah, and I guess that's that's easier in a um, a class situation than it is going to be yeah, on a walk. Yeah, and on a walk, a lot of times what I'll do is I'll just, like, uh, distract my dog, you know, so have him do a watch or something so he's busy doing something, and then throw a handful of treats for the other dog and get out of there. So, I'm glad you mentioned that because I was going towards that. <clears throat> um, because I, that's how I, I always feel like if someone's it, – it's. If someone's calling their dog back and they respond, right. then fine, cool. But if if your dog's becoming scared and you're really in a stuck situation, then I don't personally have any problem with throwing things no. down on the floor. But I think some people are worried that the other dog owner will then become annoyed. I'll be gone by the time they get to the dog, dog, so it'll be fine. Um, <laughs> and I'm yeah. a safe strategy. But honestly, if they can't even call their dog, it's, I don't care if they're mad at me. So it's... And my dog's well-being yeah, the dog is, is be the primary thing. And, you know, so, and and you can even, you know, if you're waiting, if for some reason they do approach, right, and the other owner is there, um, you know, you can be like, oh, he really likes these. And, and if there's like, well, he's allergic to liver, I'm like, well, I'm sorry, too bad, we're going to go now. Uh, you know, you just, uh, yeah, I mean, there's always the possibility that somebody will be mad that you do whatever, but it's it's a lot better than having a dog fight or a scared dog or, you know. Um, and, and, you know, there are even sort of more mean techniques that I do use sometimes if there's an off-leash dog running at me. Um, and certainly those are the ones that are more likely to get another owner upset. And so far, nobody has been because usually I'm gone by the time they get there. Oh, really? Um, what, so what like, is, uh, like silly what string. Um, so it's like a can, right? And you spray it and the string, this like party string comes out. Um, so you can spray that at the oncoming dog. Um, and it's, it's as if you just threw something at them. So it, it stops them in their tracks for a bit. And then that's a good time to, uh, you know, if you've already thrown treats at this point, cause that's always my first line of defense is the food. So they've stopped it. And then that gives them a chance to notice that there's food on the floor. Mm-hmm. Are you worried then about, well, I guess you're not, but are you, are you worried about creating a issue in that dog? A little bit, with... but, uh, I mean, it's better than a dog fight. So I mean, getting attacked by the dog that I'm working with at the time is probably the bigger problem of like the bigger issue that could be developing. But yeah, absolutely. It's like, that's why the treats are certainly going to be my first line of defense. Yeah, I've heard of people using things like pet corrector, but the the problem is that, which is just canned air, but then the problem is that you also might scare the dog. Yeah, that you're so with. yeah, if you did use something like the pet corrector, certainly you're not going to use it to correct the dog, uh, just to set that out there. 
um, I would condition the dog that you're working with for that to be not a scary thing. Um, if you feel like you're going to be using it for oncoming dogs. If you're going to be for breaking up a fight oh, with really? your dog, then you may not want to condition them. But, um, yeah. But so, yeah, if you use the pet corrector and you, and the dog is scared of it, now you have, you know, the off-leash German Shepherd was running at you. You sprayed that, and now your dog is like, oh, German Shepherds caused this, like, sound. So it's, you have even a bigger issue. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. So is that something they use as well? Um, I don't know. I don't use the pet corrector. Um, I use the silly string. And then worst case, uh, I have, you can have like the citronella spray, um, which the main use of that is it causes the dog to sneeze. So we're looking for a reflex to get them to let go if they've bitten onto somebody. Okay, yeah, but yeah, now we're talking exactly. about fights. Yeah, is that right? Another level. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, I saw the treat thing first on... Um, Patricia McConnell's blog, but I don't know if she came out of it or uh, if it was just... Possibly. I yeah, I mean, I feel like I've done it forever, and Patricia McConnell was the very first seminar that I attended, so I imagine that probably came from her. Okay, cool. Um, so, with, so, so far we've got the bat, we've got the empowerment training. Um, are those your main focus at the moment, or is there something else as well that you, you're working um, on? Or? That's pretty much it. So for my own dogs, I do you know things like teaching them to go find wild mushrooms, uh, some morel mushrooms, uh, find my keys, that sort of thing. Uh, but that's, yeah, pretty much it in the dog world. So is that yeah, scent work type exactly. stuff? And scent work is great to combine with so that as well. So And a lot of the leash handling works for the scent work that you do in bath. So is that something that you're kind of writing about and doing courses on as well, or is it just uh, something yeah, you do with no, your own dogs? Yeah, no, it's just something I do with my own dogs. Um, so I am at some point going to be working on, uh, I have a children's book that I've kind of drawn up, but I haven't, uh, or mentally drawn up, <laughs> that I need to get an actual artist to draw up. Um, so yeah, there's definitely, and getting more courses on my site. So those are current projects. Sure. So where can people find you then? We're just starting sure. to wrap it up now. Where can people find you? What can they, um, I mean, what do you offer to people? You said you mentioned yeah, the courses. Um, so the, my main site is grishastewart.com. Uh, so there we've got the all the DVDs and uh, books and that sort of thing. All of those are available in an electronic version too if you don't want to do any shipping. And then I've got online courses that are uh, structured courses that walk you through the various techniques. Um, those are at your own pace. And then we, to go with those, uh, we have an online school, uh, and in that online school, every week I do a um, like an office hours Q and A. So people submit questions, and then by video I answer those, and then those go into the batch of recordings. So we've got probably a hundred plus recordings for people, and then there's a professional level where we bring in other experts um, like Susan Friedman or um, Joseph Ledoux, the neuroscientist, and do interviews with them. So Terry Ryan, for example, is next week. And then you also have your Grisha Stewart Facebook page. I do. I, I have some also on Facebook, uh, Grisha Stewart. And then I also have a YouTube channel, Grisha Stewart One, um, and then Instagram and Twitter and all yeah. that. But the YouTube is great because it's got a lot of the everyday training that I do with the dogs. I usually do those as just like shooting as I'm walking um, and talking about what's happening there. Yeah, I, I really like your YouTube channel. It's, it's a really cool kind of insight into, like you said, what you're doing with yeah. your own dogs. It's re- it is really good. Yeah. Okay, cool. And do you do do you do oh, seminars yeah, and that. workshops? Um, <laughs> um, so <laughs> I, I travel around. I also do online seminars, like I have the one Wednesday uh, about teamwork. And but basically, I um, give weekend seminars on bats. And then the one in the UK is in a uh, weekend, but then uh, in Sweden it has an advanced day the day after as well. Um, but yeah, uh, traveling is definitely one of the main things I do. Did you say you had one in the UK yeah, coming up? Yeah, in the up, New then? Forest uh, down there. And then I also, okay. that's a weekend seminar on bats. And then I have the, the teamwork seminars, one in Hertfordshire and one in Manchester. You can also become a bat trainer, uh, is yeah, that right? Yeah, so there's a certified bat trainer, so CBATI. And that basically, you learn about bat however you want to. So getting advised by another local trainer as a mentor or going through the site. So we, like I said, we've got several courses on bat, reading the books, that sort of thing. And then um, there's a, an exam where it's uh, there's a theoretical exam online uh, with uh, as an interview with me, and then uh, people submit video showing a session that they worked with or a couple of sessions that they work with, and that's definitely by far the hardest part. That is simple, but it is not easy. So getting all those details 
correct. Uh, it's really a good process for actually learning how to make sure or learning uh, how to do that exactly right. Um, because a lot of times people will submit and then we'll give the feedback of how they can tweak their protocols. And then with that qualification, do you then go on to some kind of register? Yeah, so we have or... a directory on the website of all of the CBATIs. And then one of the things that CBATIs can do is mentor other trainers on how to do BAT. Uh, a lot of the CBATIs also do video sessions. So there's even if there isn't one directly near you, you can hire a CBATI to do that. And, um, yeah, so and then we also have a networking group within our site. And then CBATIs also get free professional memberships in my school. And the CBATI certification is for life, so that's a really good value. Okay, cool. So does that dire- is that directory aimed at pet owners looking for Correct. bat trainers? Correct. Yeah, and if it's in a lot of times when it's in other countries where it's non-English speaking, though, like their the directory listing is, you know, in Spanish or whatever, which is kind of fun. Awesome. All right, brilliant. Yeah, nice talking, nice talking to you. Thanks, Nick.